Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need, when you need it, with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Well, you know, you have to treat your work a little bit like a distance relationship in the sense that if you don't make a date to get together again, the relationship's going to fall apart. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Dignan, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rodney Evans. Hello, everyone. Um, On today's episode, we're going to discuss why we reflect infrequently, why we sort of look back infrequently at work, and why we might want to do that more often. But before we do that, let's check in. Great. So we will start this episode, like all the episodes, with a check-in round question. And today's check-in question is, what is the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Aaron. Hmm. I mean, I think at least professionally, um, I had a mentor that advised me to stop trying to change people and convince them of things Mm. and just play with the people that wanted to play with me. And at that point in my career, I was really obsessed with like, what do I have to do to convince everyone to do this the way I want to do it and to get, you know, every client that comes in the door to sort of conform to that. And he was like, no, don't do that. Just say no to all those people and just say yes to the people that want to do it the way you want to do it. And that was like, that like opened up a whole new view for me. Awesome. For me, uh, I had a business partner at a prior company who uh, was very wise and he had been on SEAL Team 6 and he had like done a lot of things and had, I always felt like had a really refreshing perspective and I was going through some sort of existential work crisis and he said to me, Rodney, you only get one spin on this planet. What are you going to do with it? And I've thought about that in so many moments of like over gripping or mm-hmm. worrying about stuff that doesn't matter and Funnily, the way that he said it made me stop and think about it because I had never heard that exact <laughs> phrase before. And I was like, what does he mean? The one spin. What does the spin mean? <laughs> Is that a day? Oh, God. But then also, it's just one of those things that's really stuck with me, I think, because of who it came from, but also because like, what better advice is there? Yeah, it's true. It's true. It's the whole, this is not a dress rehearsal thing. It seems like sometimes the things that get overdone you know, in the advice world and almost become trite are definitely like the, the deepest truths. <laughs> and you actually, you know, you sort of like, it's like, oh yeah, that's a great t-shirt. And then when you actually come to the point in your life where you get it, you're like, oh, that's like a, way more than a t-shirt. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I feel like finally we came, we, we both as people who have probably gotten a lot of good advice in our lives hung on to virtually the same trope, which is like, don't waste your life on dumb shit. Yeah. 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 Get to it. And with that in mind, uh, let's, let's, let's not waste any it. more time getting into the topic. So this is a tension that we hear pretty commonly when we talk to teams, this idea that, you know, we don't look back, we don't stop, we don't take stock, we don't make the time and the space to kind of reflect and think about, you know, what's working and, and what's not working. So I don't know, maybe talk a little bit about why why and where you see that. And then, um, you know, what what are the alternatives? What's interesting to me is I don't even hear a lot of people placing value on this practice. So when we do certain kinds of exercises and put certain tensions in front of teams, this is one that routinely comes up because most people don't do it. And it's generally not one that people have a lot of energy around because it's so far removed from the day to day (laughs) and from the way that they work together that they're like, why would you even? Um, So the, the, the thing I think is, you know, we'll talk about why it's important and what it does for us. To me, the headline of all of it is, If you want to be a learning organization, which we hear all the time, my question is, what is your learning practice? And without reflection, there is no learning. That's 
just true. And so I, I routinely want to understand from people who say that that's something that's really important to them and that's the kind of culture that they want to have, where is the time and space and practice and habit made for reflection and learning? What is reflection in an organizational context, like at a team level? To me, team level reflection is any practice where as a group, we get together and make sense of what has happened. So the practice that we most routinely use is retrospection or using retrospectives. And to me, that is like the most direct and straightforward way of doing that pattern recognition and that sense making as a group. Maybe for the uninitiated, you want to just talk a little bit about retros and what that practice is? Yeah, well, I mean, as we were as we were thinking about this topic, I kind of went back and thought, you know, where did this, where did that even come from? Because I think we've, in many ways, we've kind of fallen in love with the practice, with the idea of having a retrospective. But, um, but obviously, you know, agile and and sort of you know, scrum sprint retrospectives are not the the be all end all for for reflection, right? Like we have a few thousand sure. years of wisdom and history behind that. So I just started digging around, and you know, there obviously were after action reports in military uh, yep. world that generals have been doing for centuries, if not millennia. Um, there are debriefs in a lot of different industries where people kind of take stock and look back. So I feel like it's a thing that we do plenty. And then certainly in, you know, philosophical and religious traditions, there's a lot of just like sit with, sit with what's happened and even in therapy, right? Like kind of, uh, diagnosing what has gone on. So it feels like this very innately intuitively human thing. And yet I think in the workplace in particular, um, we just don't make space for it. Like we don't make space for a fairly natural thing. And as a result, it kind of goes unused. And I I do want to dig in in a second on why we don't make space for it. But to answer your question, I think, you know, the most common practice that we see now that, d- that did sort of emerge out of the, the agile movement was this idea of having a retrospective, which is bringing a team or, or a cross-functional group of people together after something has launched or, or a, you know, a sprint has been completed or a product has been put out in the world or on a, on a calendar basis um, and asking the question, like, what happened and what went well and what didn't go well and what did we notice and what did we learn? And there are many different flavors of these retrospectives with different, you know, sections or prompts. But the basic idea is always the same. It's just like, what do we want more of and what do we want less of in the future and what can we take away? And the, and the act of, of conversing about that and, and coming to some agreement about what happened and, and just noticing how other people experienced what happened and what was good for them or bad for them and, and the role that you might have played in that or that the situation might have played in that. Um, is really powerful stuff. And in some ways, you know, even if teams don't take any deliberate specific action coming out of that, there's just like a shared consciousness. There's an awareness of what happened. So that that retrospective practice is probably the one we're most um, committed to, uh, you know, here at The Ready. But I think there are many other ways of reflecting and they're all pretty valuable. Yeah, totally. I, I think the thing about retros that I love, and I was late to the retro game, though I was very familiar with AARs uh, from <laughs> previous lives. The uh, after action report. In the after action report, indeed. Um, preceded by the action after action review. Uh, so the, and, and, you know, when I was in banking, we did postmortems a lot. Like I've, I've experienced a lot of flavors of this, but I think what's powerful about the retrospective is the democratization of reflection. So the fact that everyone who participates is contributing equally, um, you know, whether that's through post-it notes or whether that's on sort of virtual whiteboard, what I found in a lot of other situations is uh, the, the reflection follows the power dynamic that's already established. So someone is sort of making sense of for the collective. It's like someone is almost like gathering data and being like, what are we putting in the they're report? reviewing the collective. Right. Like they're, they're going to ultimately write the bullet po- points that narrate the experience of the collective. Whereas right. in a retro, it's like, if I'm the power holder and I think a thing is super, super important and there's no other post-it notes about that thing on the retro board, we're probably not going to talk about it that much. And like, it doesn't really matter that I'm the highest paid person in the room because like, if nobody else cared, I can keep like banging that drum, but like, there's no energy. And so I think the thing, you know, we can talk about different kinds of practices, the value in a practice of reflection where there is 
equality of voice, I think is really important because you're not truly going to see patterns and recognize patterns and understand divergence and convergence unless you figure out a way to pull the politics out of the conversation. That's right. Yeah. And it kind of goes back to the principle of participation that we talk about in so many different contexts, which is, you know, we want more participation. We want more even participation. And through that, we, we hope to get the most accurate picture of reality. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's wisdom of the crowds all over again. So yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. So here's, so here's the question then. If these practices have been around forever in different flavors, right? Postmortem, AAR, debrief, retro, et cetera. Um, and they're powerful. And I think we'd both agree that when we do them with our own team or with others, it's always like, why don't we do that more often? Um, why, why don't we do that more often? Like, what is your experience of the, of the, the kind of resistance to it? And where does that come from? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I have so many answers, but also n- no answer. Uh, so one thing pops for me, which is in our deep human desire to tell our story and to tidily narrate particularly things that have been unpleasant and to like sort of box them up and make them feel safe for us again. Often we don't want to like swim in the stew of all of the angles of it and all of the perspectives that there might have been on that. And I think I, 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 I've certainly had the conversation enough times to believe that this is a real thing where I've said to a team, look, why don't we run a retro on this experiment we just did or this project that just finished or this launch that just failed or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I get the response like, I think we know what happened. (laughs) And it's like, you don't. (laughs) Like when all I hear in that is like, we don't want to talk about it. Like we don't want to take ourselves back to a place where we have to admire our own mistakes and failings, et cetera. And in our desire to control and avoid, we'd rather just not. Like we'd rather just not go back to it. Ironically, the more often you do it, the less unpleasant it is. But it's like, if you don't dive off the diving board, you're never going to start. As I was reflecting on this, I was thinking, you know, I was reflecting. I was thinking <laughs> um, the the thing we most want to avoid is that kind of emotional discomfort. And in order to do that, we're willing to deal with a lot of other kinds of discomfort. So like, <laughs> I would happily do the project again badly with a bunch of people driving me crazy if it means I don't have to tell Phil to his face that the way he handled this really was disruptive for me. And right? deal with all the like emotional, you know, sturm und drang that would come with that. So yeah. I, I feel like um, we're very we're very hesitant to, to go to those places. And to your point... If you, you know, and this is true in our relationships with our families and our friends and everybody else, our colleagues, if you don't go there, if you don't sort of talk about what happened and make requests of each other and and make observations and talk about your feelings and needs, then what builds up is like quite a lot. And so I can see how a team that had maybe like not told each other the truth for a decade would be like, "Mm, we don't really want to debrief this project because it's not really the project they'd be debriefing. It would be the decade in review. It's like a referendum on the team. Right. Whereas a team that's done this every two weeks for a year is like, oh, I mean, what haven't we heard, right? Like, yeah. what haven't we already said? So there is a little bit of a Band-Aid pulling that goes into this. And that's why I think more than more than many practices that we, that we you know, kind of coach and, and, and facilitate, I think this is one where the leaders or the influencers or the people that hold space in the organization have to just, like, commit to being like, we're going to do this at the end of every project or the end of every sprint or the end of every month for like six months, no matter what. And then we'll talk about whether we ever want to do it again. Cause you kind of have to get over that hump of all the baggage and all the reasons not to do it and the reasons to punt it. And that's the other thing we see a ton is like it's scheduled and we're getting closer and closer and then it's the day of, and it's like, Oh, well we have to reschedule because you know, whoever can't be there or there's some more important hot burning thing that, you know, that goes on. Which I guess at some level is probably the other, like the number two reason why they don't happen, which is we're just so, we're so productivity obsessed as a culture. And as a result, the idea that like just sitting around talking about what happened and learning doesn't feel very productive. And what would feel a whole lot more productive is just like rocket right into the next project or meeting or whatever and do it badly again. That would be much preferred in terms of just like putting points on the board 
than everybody sitting in a room being like, so what did you notice in the last two weeks? Right. So one thing just to go back to the sort of safety of it that's worth mentioning is with a lot of teams I've worked with, I have noticed that when they start this practice, they do the the items that they bring or the stickies that they write are pretty surface in nature. And as a facilitator, I'll be like, three per person. I said three because people are just like, I don't want it. I'm going to keep it in my head. I'm not going to play. I'm going to see what else ends up there. You know what I mean? But with most teams that create any kind of habit, and I had this happen with a team last year, and it was like one of the most mind-blowing situations. It only took them, I would say, three months of monthly reps before their sticky notes were like, you know what, Mike? (laughs) Here's the thing we need to talk about. And it was so great because they so quickly realized that there wasn't going to be a repercussion afterward. They weren't going to walk out and like knife each other in the hallway. And in fact, when they did that stuff in the room, they did make a lot of sense out of what happened. Mike did apologize because he didn't even realize that there was an axe grind, et cetera, et cetera. So it's like, you can really think of it like wading into the deep end of the pool. It's not like the first day or the first rep has to be this soul-bearing thing. The most thing. exposed. Teams learn how to do that over time, but I think the idea that the idea that that's even where we're headed is, is scary. Um, well, and the space, the space that's created by saying we do this thing in this way and then doing it over and over again, it you know, we're so ritualistic as humans, we change our mindset and our perceptions and the way we show up depending on what we're doing. And it is a little bit like, you know, the surgeon washing their hands before surgery, you go into the room, and it's like, now we're going to have a retro and somehow that is a safer space. Or it's a it's a different thing than just confronting Mike in the hallway, right? And being like, Mike, you suck. But like in the in the retro, it's like, we all know this container, and we know what it's for. And somehow doing that there, there's just more space for it. Yeah, absolutely. And to your other point about it not feeling like the most pressing thing we have to do, like I still feel very challenged by that. So I was recently (laughs) on a project with a very beloved colleague and we decided because of the pace of how things were going that once a week we were going to do a mini retro, which we call the hot wash, which is also from the military. And we are going to take 30 minutes and just do hot wash, hot wash. Uh, What went well? What didn't go well? What does that mean for next week? And there was something about it that to me felt like I was like skipping school. Like it felt like, oh, we're like, I don't know if it felt selfish or it felt fun or it felt indulgent. I don't know what the quality of the guilt was, but every single week there would be a part of me that would be like, we should be working on something, (laughs) quote unquote, as if this isn't work. And yet- I both know intuitively and from that in- doing that practice in that engagement, there's probably the most valuable 45 minutes of the week. And yet right. every week I was like, should we? You can't, or should yeah, we you like can't shake it? I don't know what is in there for me, but it's like deep and somatic that I'm like, this is this is like screwing around, not working. Yeah. Yeah. And in some ways, I think that reflects back to our broader practice of organizational change because the retro is the first step in noticing attention or an opportunity or something to do differently. And the next step would be to sort of put a new practice in place or a new commitment or a new agreement. And so, you know, in some ways, like that's why, I, that's why I think a lot of organizations struggle with continuous change period. Mm-hmm. Cause they're just like working on how we work just doesn't feel like the work. Like we're not, right. it, it's not the same thing as shipping new code or shipping a document or, a new product or something that where you feel like, man, I'm working on the thing. On the Instead, thing. You're like working on the way, it, you know, the way the system works. We're working in the business and on the business. Um, and I do, yeah, I feel like there's a real, um, you know, kind of cultural uh, perception about that that's just off and that we all have to kind of grapple with. So I guess what I'm wondering from here is, are there questions that you're sitting with having, having spent so much of your career in reflection with teams, et cetera, what are you still wondering about when it comes to to retrospectives um, and reflection as a practice? Like, what are you still curious about or, or feel like is more unknown? A few things. One is I still wonder about the size of the containers. Hmm. So I find with teams that haven't done as much working on how they work that I tend to uh, make the containers smaller. So tighter questions, more specifically, like I want this many ideas per question, more like rigor and sort of constraint around them because I think Mm -hmm. that makes them feel like 
safe like a thunder shirt, you know, for a dog. Right, right. Um, yeah. And then over time, like making that more expansive. But I even find for myself, sometimes the constraint creates a really different uh, insight. Like when sure. I constrain myself to like, you know, we're Allie and I this week are only going to talk about how we partnered. And, mm. and next week, we're only going to talk about, uh, you know, the asset that we created. And next, like, right. there's utility in that and in, in, the in how constrained you are in the questioning, in the time boxing, in the processing. And my, and this is, this pertains to retros, but it also pertains to like journaling or any other kind of reflective activity that you're doing. And I just wonder like, what's the right size of that? Yeah. That what about you? I mean, I think same. I think I, I think a lot about um, the the frequency and the team size. So it's again, it sort of comes down to like the fine tuning. But like, you know, what are the right frequencies for the right for the, for different sorts of teams, and how many people need to be involved for it to be, you know, helpful or beneficial? And 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 you know, you can keep expanding that aperture, right? Like, do do you do it with just the two of you? Do you do it with you two and your client? Do you do it with the client and their customers? Like, there's so many different ways to slice and dice that. And I think when you, as you get more comfortable with the practice, and you realize how many different levers there are in the control room, it's kind of like, well, which ones do you use when and yeah. why? And I don't know. There's right. a lot of theory out there about that. Like, when when to zoom in, when to zoom out, when to have more, when to have less when to do it fast, when to really make it expansive. Um, I think a lot of that we're just feeling into right now. Mm -hmm. And I would love to build maybe some more heuristics or some more kind of standards that, of course, you can di diverge from, but that just say, like, here's a really good way to think about retros within a team over the course of a year and how many you might have and what they might, you know, what some basic rules of the road might be. So um, I think, you know, we always joke that the best retro is the one that happens because right. there's always a lot of debate about like, how do we make it perfect? And at some level, because the bar is so low, because we do it so rarely, the right answer is like, just do one, like yeah. just get in the room and just talk to each other. Right. I think that's right. And then I think the questions I'm sitting with are, if you can get past that hump, and I would argue that even, you know, even we are not always past that hump. We punt our retros from totally. time to time. Um, <laughs> no, never. We, <laughs> never happened. Once you can get past that hump, then the next question becomes like, well, how, how then do you further design and manufacture the right uh, experiences? Yeah, I so, think that's right. Uh, yeah. And I, the other thing that makes me think about is just how do we collectively realize when we're like in our anxiety brain. So like if you sort of, you know, have had a lot of therapy or practice Buddhism or, you know, participate in a variety of these kinds of disciplines, there's a lot of conjecture that um, depression lives in the past and anxiety lives in the mm. future. And like, if right. you have an anxiety brain, you tend to spend a lot of time um, like planning and considering what might be. And certainly in most companies, there is a tremendous amount of systemic anxiety. And so all of the investment that feels worthy is like, let's look forward. Let's right, just right, right. forward. And so I also was thinking, as you said that about like, the routinization is so important. And then also, how do we just start to tell our anxiety brain that like pausing though counterintuitive actually is the self sitting right. and doing another planning session will not take care of the anxiety that you're feeling about the unknown. And, you know, it's no different than like your therapist saying like, sit down and journal or meditate and you being like, how does that solve my problems? It's the same thing. It's just a, at a system right. level. Right. Yeah. It's, you have to point that anxiety somewhere. And I think, yeah. you know, most recently I've yeah. been sort of harvesting, we have a little garden in the back and I've been harvesting and I often use the garden, uh, metaphor or analogy about this, this work. And it's like, we're noticing what worked this year and what didn't. And I'm looking at my wife and I'm like, if we don't write down that this vegetable right. didn't grow well here, we will plant this shit again next year and right. forget. <laughs> and then we're going to be back here again being like, the tomatoes didn't really pop, did they? Um, and it's like, they're not gonna. So, yeah. but, but the practice of like, and so even though I have anxiety about next year, the right move is not to like rush to replant. Right. Like that's, that's the exact wrong move. The right move is like really study what happened and then, and then make different choices. So I think you just have to, with so many things in our work, it's about redirecting the energy, not saying no to it. It's yeah. Like, have your anxiety. That's fine. Where are you channeling it to though? Like how do you channel it in a healthy way? And I think the retrospective practice, the reflection practice at an individual level, at a team level, at an org level, 
um, at a market level, like is really, really good hygiene. So that I think that's where where we should leave it. And um, and at this point, I think we should turn our thoughts to who can come shed even more light on this. The person I'm most excited to talk to about retrospectives is our friend and co-conspirator, Jordan Husney, who has yeah. created a technology called Parable that supports this kind of work. So after the break, we will be joined by Jordan. Ready, set, go. Hey, everybody. We're back with Jordan Husney, co-founder and CEO of Parable. Jordan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Aaron. Hi, Rodney. Hey. Uh, Jordan, for those that don't know, what is Parable and why did you build it? Parable is a free place on the internet to hold a great retrospective or status meeting. It's particularly suited for agile teams or uh, project teams that have just completed something hard. We built Parable because I noticed when I was a consultant working with you that folks were already working remote back in 2013, 2014. They would sit in traffic for a couple of hours and then show up and have a full day of video conference meetings. <laughs> and uh, I had this prediction that conference rooms were quickly going to become irrelevant and it was all going to move online. And it looked like that was a good prediction. Totally. I would say that is definitely coming true uh, more and more every year. One thing that I've wondered about, and I don't know this story, Jordan, is uh, why retros versus another way of working or another meeting type? Like, did you guys think about anything else or was it always retros and why? Yeah. So it's a real, it's a startup story in the sense that where the market has a start and where we wanted to start were two different places. Mm -hmm. We wanted to be able to facilitate a new way of working in a digital way for everybody. And that meant making it easier to have effective meetings. What we found was that the community of folks who are ready for that today uh, practice agile. And they are the folks that already are used to having structured meetings, working in a cadence. They want to go to a place to meet online. And increasingly, agile product development teams specifically can't hold them in conference rooms because they're already working with folks that are living in a multitude of time zones and geographies. So agile and, and retros was the place to start. That makes perfect sense. So you are probably one of a handful of tools online then that are seeing, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of retros flow through your system on a regular basis. What have you learned about retrospectives, kind of watching people use the tool and, and struggle with the tool? Like what, what are some of the takeaways about this practice that you've been able to observe as a host for so many of them? Uh, so, yeah, we've, we've seen roughly uh, 55,000 meetings now be run on the platform. Wow. wow. Yeah. <laughs> we there are 700 organizations that are active on the tool out of many thousands who have showed up to run retros. If a team shows up and invites their friends and then they they grow to let's say three teams or more, there's a pretty good chance that one of us is going to reach out to try and learn more about that organization. So we we really try to learn about our users firsthand. What, what we've learned is that teams that would self-assess as being in crisis, like, you know, the sky's on fire and we're barely, we're barely going to make it. Those are the ones who will probably not run retrospectives regularly. Totally. Um, that tracks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and the ones who kind of already have their shit together, they're gonna stick. And that is real interesting to me. <laughs> so for the teams, Jordan, that uh, are a little avoidant about doing retros because of because crisis or whatever the reason, why? Why do you think people hesitate to do this practice? I, I think that the surface reason is that they are always looking forward. They, they can only see the mountain of work 
they've already mm-hmm. missed the deadline in their mind, right? Like they're just perpetually missing mm-hmm. deadlines that they're creating for themselves or that the world has for them. And as such, their level of anxiety is so high that that taking a pause or what feels to them like taking a pause and working on the team itself feels like an indulgence and that they don't deserve the indulgence. Broadly generalizing, that's what we see there. I think even we've experienced that. I mean, it does feel like you're not doing, and I'm making air quotes with my fingers right now, the work when you're doing a retrospective, right? It feels like you're taking a vacation from the work to communicate and then and then somehow that that's not going to feed back into, you know, a sharper axe, a more efficient approach, a more effective team, which of course it does. And every time we finish one, we're like, oh, we're so glad we did that. And every time we start one, we're like, do we really need this? Why are we doing this? That's right. What's funny is when I when I speak with those teams, or one of my colleagues speaks with those teams, they always say the same thing. So team in crisis, hair on fire. They're like, well, how was that retro? They're like, oh my goodness, it was so good. Oh, we worked on so many Mm -hmm. things. And We'll say, well, are, are you going to do it again? Yeah, if we can possibly make the time. I mean, things are really crazy for us right now. And what we try to leave behind with them is, well, you know, you have to treat your work a little bit like a distance relationship in the sense that if you don't make a date to get together again, the relationship's going to fall apart. It's not going to happen. Yeah. yeah. We obviously, not, not in a scientific way, have tracked a team that self-reports that they're in crisis with adopting the habit of retros. But I'm a little skeptical that that folks that are already there are able to turn it around. What we do see is um, many thousands of teams who aren't in crisis and they approach the ends of their work in a very passionate way, but they're actually very dispassionate about working together in the sense that they they mm-hmm. they see it almost like you know, like what I imagine an amazing military unit to be. They're just like head in the game, doing the job. You know, bullets might be flying, but it's steady on. Totally. And I I love what you said about just, you know, the time commitment, because it is so often an excuse. And one of my resolutions for this year, which is not really a resolution because I hate them, but... I am getting really serious about just scheduling the things that are important uh, because, you know, we travel and we have busy lives and it's very easy to let things go. And I got my hair cut on Friday and the woman who cuts my hair was like, bitch, when was the last time you got your hair cut? And I was like, I don't know, like 11 months ago. <laughs> a long time ago. And she was like, you are an adult human being. You need to get your hair cut more than once a year, which is true. True story, Kales. I see you. And when I was walking out of the hair salon, I just made an appointment for 12 weeks from now. And the uh-huh. likelihood is approximately 80% better that that will happen than that I would remember to call in 12 weeks and make an appointment. Because by then, like, it's over and the flights are booked and it's never going to happen. And even though it's a small and silly example, I feel like it's the same yes. thing with retros. It's like, yes. if it's not on the calendar and we don't at least try to schedule our lives around it, the likelihood of getting those people together through, like, kismet or luck yeah, well, is quite you know, low. Uh, I, think, I think that that's exactly right. We're recording this right now, shortly after the holidays. The new year has just passed. And we all know that gyms everywhere are overfull, right? Right. Yeah. Are exploding. And are flooding. I think that right. if, if any one of us approaches a team that is super busy, that thinks that they're in crisis, and we, and we ask them to adopt one more thing, the chances of that thing being adopted is really low. But at the beginning of a cycle, the beginning of a new year, mm-hmm. it's, it's pretty easy to get your butt to the gym. The same thing, and this is a very practical tip for anyone who's like retro curious, <laughs> a, a really great way to run a retro, actually run a pre-mortem before the project kicks off. So what you do is you go to Parable, P-A-R-A-B-O-L.co, you create a new meeting, and then you gather your folks together and you just ask a couple of easy questions. The first is, what are the best possible things that could come out of this project if we do a stellar job? And then what should we watch out for? What's the worst possible things that are mm-hmm. going to that, that happen when we're done with this project? What are we going to be sad right, about? Right. And then you can mitigate those things. And then you'll find that it's easy to, to pick up the retro habit because... Pre-mortems are super effective. 
That makes sense. And they're fun. I mean, I think it's it's a lot more fun to imagine how yeah. things might go terribly That's wrong right. than it is to actually have them go terribly wrong and then talk about it. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a form of scenario planning. So what are some of the things that are controversial within a retro? Like, what will people talk about? What will they not talk about? What's hard about it? What are some of those habits? What have you noticed about kind of the, you know, the meat within the retro itself? Well, as far as holding retros in numbers and getting feedback on a retrospective product, the most controversial thing that we see is whether or not feedback given in a retro should be anonymous or not. And it divides 50-50. I mean, it's Coke or Pepsi on that question. Wow. And that I find fascinating. As far as I can tell, and you know, I'm, I'm using some intuition here when I talk to team leads, it depends on the degree of uh, safety within the team, where sure. if there's a high degree of safety, people don't necessarily want the feedback to be anonymous because they're like, people should be able to say whatever they say. If we know who said it ahead of time, it's going to save us time because we can turn right to that individual and we can say, Jane, tell us what you meant by that comment. <laughs> can you give us an example? And then there's a lot of folks that believe that it should be anonymous because it's it's a forum by which people can say what they're seeing and 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 check if anyone else is going to validate it. What's so funny about this Jordan is that we just had Joel from Buffer on the show talking about transparency and they specifically played with making their feedback process transparent and oh. then it back. Because it was one place where they were like, uh, we're not getting, you know, it's not the juice for the squeeze is not necessarily worth it there. And it's better to let people decide if yes. they want to go public with their feedback so that they can get help and support. And what I what my immediate reaction was, and I want to hear from each of you where, where your head went on this, you know, Coke or Pepsi choice is, uh, you know, I think feedback about like specific interactions or general phenomena within the team and the project I'd be totally open to, I think like hyper personal, hyper vulnerable feedback, maybe not just because it's, there's such an audience there. And it also might feel a little indulgent on that one-to-one -one relationship to have the, the other 10 of us standing there while you work that out. So I, I sort of came down on the like some, but not all uh, side of the fence, but I'm curious what, what you think, Jordan, and what you think, Rodney. Well, I just want to like clarify for people who maybe haven't done retrospectives before, uh, and or maybe are not familiar with Parable, what we're talking about is as we are generating sticky notes, whether they're virtual or whether they are paper, having some kind of identifier. So in a, the most classic right. retros, we're all sticking stuff up there. And if we're using post-it notes versus a platform, there are generally tells because the human beings are walking their stickies up to the board. <laughs> we recognize each other's handwriting. And so even though the, we're not labeling things with our name, uh, after a couple of reps, you start to right. know pretty clearly whose is what. In a platform like Parable, there is more of a mask because things are just appearing on a screen with no other identifiers. But either way, in either instance, and anonymous or not anonymous, as the conversation unfolds, inevitably, it's like, I want to know more about this sticky. And then I wrote it. And so then I have to say something or it's silent when someone asks that question. And it's super fucking awkward, <laughs> which I've seen many times. Uh, so I just wanted to like clarify sort of the operational aspect of that in case anybody didn't have a mental model of what we were talking about. Who wrote this Rodney Sucks post-it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And dead silence. No one. No one's ever written that post-it, <laughs> just so everyone is listening. It's clear. Do you, do you have a, you know, on, on the teams that you work with, Rodney, do you have an instinct as to which direction you'd lean and why? Yeah, I lean strongly toward anonymity, even though I understand that for the reasons I just said, that's not legit. Always because of the ways in which you can identify if you're in the room together. Uh, and even, you know, having used Parable many times, like I know how other people write and what sort of their pet gripes are. And I have a pretty <laughs> good idea of who's written a lot of stuff anyway, even when it is anonymous. My reason for anonymity is actually a little bit, it's related to safety, but it's a little bit less about the vulnerability and it's more about the power dynamic. And that the thing that I love about this kind of structure is that it is emergent and that it is 
equal, like equal contribution. Uh, you know, if I am the lowest paid person on the team, but I want to make 20 sticky notes and Jordan, you're the highest paid person. You only want to make two. We can do that. And there's not rules that say that, you know, there's voice that's related to hierarchy. And I just think when you make things non-anonymous, just because of human nature and pack order and, you know, our basest instincts, we start to look around to be like, what is the boss saying? And what are his topics? And like, where is that energy going? And I like the idea, even though we know some of that is going to show up anyway, I like the idea of hedging that to whatever extent possible. that, yeah. Yeah. What do you think, Jordan? Where do you land on this one? I land on the anonymity side of of this argument as well. And I I yeah, I think that the power structure thing is is vital. The second factor that that sways me is about anchoring, which is mm-hmm. you if, when you're when you're sitting down to do a retro and if you're just asking two simple questions, which is like, where did we do well? Where could we do better? You want to get as broad a diversity of examples in both of those columns as possible. And if you're able to see what I'm writing when I'm writing it, it's just going to bias your mind down a certain right. track. Now that said, right, right. I actually think in a very practical way that it's not Coke or Pepsi, it might be Dr. Pepper. It's like, it's a little bit of both where you might want to do a pass where you you get a bunch of diversity out on the table and then you do a second round and maybe you do some like grouping and then, yeah. And then you say, hey, let's go a little bit deeper. I think where teams, um, like a, an effective retrospective versus one that's less effective, it, because of course we know the only wrong way to do a retrospective is not to do one in the first place. But the most <laughs> effective retrospective that, that you can have, I think, is not abstract. It is as mm-hmm. micro detailed and anecdotal as possible. And so in your second pass, mm-hmm. after you sort of got the, got everyone's feedback up on the wall, then you're like, you just do the thing where it's like, great, can we give more examples of this theme or that theme? And you kind of mine those things out a little bit. And just to totally plus one that Jordan, as a facilitator in the room, more than once in my life, have I seen what emerged in the first round, only had a plan for the first round and been like, okay, we didn't really like get there and been like, okay, everybody grab Mm -hmm, grab another mm -hmm. post-it deck and then thought for a minute about a deeper question set that I could ask to get to the level of granularity or specificity that you're talking about. So I feel like whether you're in the room or in a tool, um, don't be frustrated. If you're doing this for the first time and in the first round of data, you don't get what you're looking for. Don't hesitate to just take another crack at it. Cause like in emergent practice, that's what happens. Sometimes you don't get the content right. you're after. You're peeling the onion. Yeah. yeah. And if it's been a long time, it's pretty tough outer layer. You know, you like, you really have to do a few rounds. So, so I hear us talking about anonymity and power. And now I'm starting to think also about culture and geography. So is there, is there an element of that in here as well, Jordan, either about cultures that are drawn to the retrospective practice or cultures that show oh, up to it differently? That's, I'm, thank you for asking that question. Yeah, we've seen something really funny that makes sense in the posterior, but surprised us at, at first. Uh, you know, we're um, a US-based company. Most of the tech we built here in the West Coast, but over a third of our users are in Germany and the Netherlands. And at first, it, you can kind of chuckle it and you're like, all right, we get it. Agile's popular in Germany because Germans love process. <laughs> but in fact, it's a little bit deeper than that. I've noticed an, an anecdotal bias in the US for harsh feedback. Not harsh. Let's call it honest. Honest feedback to be delivered um, <laughs> one-on-one. You know, save it for the one-on-one. We'll, we'll talk mm-hmm. behind closed doors. Germans seem to have much less of that bias. And so they can chew through more organizational tension in a group setting and therefore be more efficient with their time. And they tend to do that in a retrospective. And um, that's been really cool for us to see. That's interesting. And I know on a previous uh, moment, Rodney, you mentioned working with a Dutch bank to have a similar experience. 
Yeah. That yeah. sort of like willingness to go there. Right. And I just was uh, in a little coaching cohort and I coached a German executive. And I have this experience a lot as a coach where someone will be telling you about an issue that they have that's interpersonal. And as a coach, you're like, well, what conversations have you had? And most of the American clients are like, well, you know, I haven't. <laughs> at all. And <laughs> I coached this woman every night for a week. And it, in every single session, no exaggeration, there would be a moment where I'd be like, have you talked to this person? And she was like, of course. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, obviously, she was like, yeah, dumbass. Of course, I talked yes. to them. Like, that's not how we do it where I live. We talk to people about the things that are bothering us. But it was just so telling that there was not one moment where she was like, maybe I should have that conversation because right. it's so obvious that if you are holding tension in those cultures, you would address it. So we, we ask every team that we talk to, to give us examples of the change that they make. And we have noticed something, and this is, this is going to be a question for, for you both. In a culture in the Netherlands or in Germany, or if you're working at a, at a great place uh, in the US, it's pretty easy to make individual change. If you can surface the anecdote like, yes, you know, I was the one that, that shipped yeah. the change out to production and I broke our application for everyone. Next time, what I'm going to do is I'm going to change my behavior in this way. That's pretty easy to do because that's all within your scope and power as an individual to change yourself. Where everyone seems to get stuck is when you have to change something as a group and retro surface that tension. But if you're just getting started, how would you recommend that they process it? I think the retros are in many ways part of that first, you know, moment in our looping process. When we talk about looping from tension to practice to experiment in, in the book, um, that's exactly what we're getting at. And sometimes to find the tension, we have to talk to each other. So it might, it might be obvious to me, but it's not obvious to you. And so the retro is one of those kinds of moments where you can say, you know, what's holding us back from doing our best work? And this, this anecdote or this moment or this thing that happens comes up. And then the next thing we can do then coming out of that retrospective space and into a more, you know, proactive space is be like, okay, well, what should we try instead? And if it is a group phenomenon, what should we try instead might be a new working agreement. It might be a new process. It might be a new set of roles. It might be a change in decision rights. There's a whole wealth of like OS change that comes on the heels of that. But depending on what it is, it could be, you know, quite simple or it could be quite elaborate. The important thing, I think, is to delineate between the retrospective space where we're mining for tension and understanding and then this more like, OS design and change space where we're saying, yeah, let's go try something new in the future. And one of the things I like about the um, the tool, honestly, no, you know, no shameless plug, um, is that it it has the space on the right for action and for insight. And so you have your things you're talking about, the cards and you know, quote unquote, post its that you've played with uh, in the first round of of coming up with stuff to to observe. But then the, to the right, it's like, all right, well, what are we going to do about it? Which is the part that I think people often miss in the retrospective is they get really excited about the sharing. And then there isn't a lot of meat on the bone about what happens next week yeah. or next month. I, I think that, yeah. so I'll, I'll raise an anecdote from a, a really cool company. Are you both familiar with uh, DuckDuckGo? No. Oh, yes. So DuckDuckGo is, they're, they're these crazy idealists who are <laughs> trying to compete with Google. You know, they're, they've started search. a search engine company. Yeah. <laughs> And their thing is, it's all about uh, privacy. So it, it's the Google that you would use if you don't want everything that you search for to be tracked. <laughs> and uh, they're a fully distributed company that have no central office. And when they run retrospectives and they surface organizational tension, they do a thing that I, I wish more organizations would do where um, every working agreement. So whether or not it's organizational, like this is our company's vacation policy, or if it's role specific, like who gets to ship code or not ship code, that working agreement has a single owner. And the tensions and anecdotes that come up get pinned to that working agreement. So you can kind of see these tree rings of, of tension with their working agreements as, as time goes on. And the individual 
who owns that working agreement gets to be the person who's like the the working agreement's my product. Now let's let's convene a, a process to iterate it. And it's it's up to that individual to decide if they want to do that by consensus or consent or a vote or however. And I think that's that's pretty cool. That's the place that I see today where where organizations really get stuck. It's like, okay, well now we see the tension, but like how do we actually turn it into some change? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And what we haven't talked about, but is probably worth mentioning is in in my view at least, a retro is one aspect of a disciplined operating rhythm. And the other aspects that are very important are things like weekly action or tactical meetings, are things like governance meetings, are things like strategy meetings. And when you get really dialed in at doing these practices, you'll notice, you know, we notice a couple of things with teams. One is that if you're missing parts of that operating rhythm, then the meeting that you have will start to dysfunction. So the retro will start to become a a planning meeting because we don't have a strategy meeting or the action meeting will start to become the place where we need to talk about what happened because we don't have a retrospective meeting. Like that's that's just what happens because we don't have all the containers. What I really like to see, I mean, I think I would say the retro is the most important part of an operating rhythm. And if you are a team that has those other kinds of forums happening, it becomes really easy through the course of a retro to just be like, okay, that's a project that's going to go in the backlog. Okay, that's a proposal that someone will draft for the next governance meeting. Okay, that's a thing for us to like slot into just our triage list to unblock next week. Like if we have the other places, then it's really easy for the tensions and ideas and solutions that get surfaced in a retro to be pushed to the next place. That's right. That that makes a lot of sense to me. When we've thought about the hierarchy of needs of meetings, because in the end, you know, we have our our most popular meeting is the retrospective meeting, but we are an online meeting company. So having a sense of the order of, of where to go is important. Retros to us also feel like, and we have the data to show that that it's where teams like to start. I think that then there's a, like an open question. Is the next place that you go fixing your planning process? Or is the next place that you go fixing like your weekly status action or tactical meeting? And like controversy, I think it's actually the planning meeting where you go next, because if you don't feel like you have a a prioritized list of things to do, then it becomes really hard to feel like your status meeting isn't the place to do your planning. To, To your point, Rodney. Yeah, I could totally make the argument either way. I would probably go to the weekly instead of a planning meeting only not because I don't think that they're both necessarily, but only because I see too many teams who go into a planning meeting, but don't yet understand what their shared work really is. Yeah, And so I want them to be like in a feedback loop between something that looks like a weekly review of like a Kanban board and a planning meeting to be like, okay, well, what is our shared work that we're currently doing and don't know one another is doing? Okay, now let's have a conversation about something that is higher order that governs whether that is the right work to be doing. And then let's go back to the weekly and clean that shit up. But like, I totally, I totally get your rationale, Jordan. I just, I do find the thing where teams go like, oh, we're a team because we report to the same person, but they don't yet have that understanding even after a retro of like what their shared work is and why they exist as a group. It, it occurs to me that this is a complex phenomenon. Do right? you think because, like, <laughs> yeah, Of course, right? <laughs> because, you know, it's it's not complicated. It's not a watch, right? It's going to be some teams need to go to this meeting and some teams need to go to that totally. meeting. I think we can, we can all agree on that. The other voice I'm hearing in my head is our previous guest, Dan Kim, being like, <laughs> don't pre-schedule all these meetings. <laughs> right. and, and so there is a little bit of a paradox here of like, what do you need as a team? Do you need the retro on the board every four weeks, no matter what. And that's something that supports where you're at as a team. Are you at a level of day-to-day honesty and and fluidity that like you can schedule it when you need it? I think you have to check in with yourself and your team to know. Um, I don't know that there is like a silver bullet here, but I think the good news is that there's only a handful of, of moves. And, and, you know, one move is 
do a retro and you can do it regularly or you can do it ad hoc. But if it never happens, you're not doing either one. Right. And so you have to yeah, kind of yeah. decide. The wonderful thing about retros is that everyone can do them. Every kind of team can do them. You don't have to be an agile team. You don't have to share tasks. Like you actually don't even have to be dependent on each other. Even if you're just a working group and you all do sort of the same thing. Like if you're just all accountants or you're all lawyers, you don't even share the same account. You can come to a retro kind of reflect on what went well, what went poorly within a timeframe and have a bunch of epiphanies about how to improve your own individual practice and not every um gathering of people can be that productive and that universal totally and i'm really glad you said the thing jordan because i didn't think to about starting with a retro because to your point like i think whether you're a pretty loosely knit group or not even really a group, or you're a team that's coming together for the first time under a new leader or around a new project, no matter sort of how much shared context and shared content you have, I think it is fascinating to see how doing this practice will pull a group together and create some kind of coalescing just by understanding what our shared experience has been and starting to see those patterns. And like, I've really started using retros in the last six months as a significant tool for psych safety for that reason. It's like, before we even get into like a user manual to me or like figuring out what our team charter is or whatever, I just think it's really interesting to be, to bring a group of human beings who maybe don't even know each other's last names together and be like, how's life been for you? Let's see. Let's see like what exists right. that we share. Yeah, actually, it'd be fun to think about what that that question set would be for your retro. Yeah. Yeah, kind of like your your uh your your team coalescing pre-mortem. <laughs> yeah, your introductory yeah, retro. That would be really cool. So sp- speaking of, um, as we kind of bring this super fun convo to a close, Jordan, what are some of the pro tips that you have? both for the teams who are doing their very first retro who have never even thought about this practice until they listen to this podcast. And then at the other end of the spectrum, what are a couple of pro tips for the people who are like varsity dialed in, but want to be even better? Mm. All right. Well, the first is about attitude. Check in with yourself and ask yourself when you're working with your team, if you have big launch mentality or not. Mm. What I mean by that is, are you viewing your work as rowing the oar and keeping pace with your colleagues to get someplace gradually? Or are you thinking about this in terms of like scaling a mountain and you're eventually going to reach a pinnacle? Mm -hmm. I would argue that you should have the oar rowing mentality. And the more you can psych yourself out of the big launch like we're gonna if we just get this thing over the line everything's gonna be awesome mindset the more fulfilling your work's gonna be the better your work is gonna be and the better performing your team is gonna be as a result the way that i say it to my own team is it's just about painting the fence Mm -hmm. that will keep you uh in the right frame of mind to hold your team rituals and hold regular retrospectives and think about making small, rapid team improvements. And having like little phrases like paint the vents kind of keeps everybody where they, keeps them in the pocket of, of how they should be thinking. Second pro tip is be as anecdotal as possible. And if you find, so a terrible retro is a bunch of people giving feedback like, we did good work. Um, too many <laughs> bugs. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> uh, shipped late, right? right. The, those are that's terrible feedback, but it's extremely common. Great feedback sounds like requiring three people to sign off on every code review held us back from making our ship window this sprint. That's a really great piece of feedback to write down and. Uh, mm-hmm. Putting in that level of detail into your retrospective is the right thing to do. Um, and then for you know your varsity team, I think that a great retrospective 
practice is to, uh, I'll give you a couple. One is uh, rotate the facil- facilitator around because uh, cool, yeah. That that changes the emotional environment and the type of feedback that you get a lot. Power dynamics. Mm-hmm. Hashtag power dynamics. The second is um, when you get to the change making part of your retro, where you've discovered some theme. It's it's uh, hot for a number of people. You uh, hold the discussion, echoing back to what I was saying about being anecdotal. Uh, the most powerful question you can ask is, give, can you give me an example? And then the second most powerful question that you can ask is, well, what should we do next time? And assigning mm-hmm. assigning change as work. So you don't have to come up with a proposal for what to do within the retro. As a matter of fact, it's probably best if you don't. But coming up with a work item that sounds like um, revised vacation policy or new code review policy drafted and handing it to a single owner for them to be accountable is uh, powerful stuff. Awesome. All right. Well, I think that uh, probably draws our little retrospective on retrospectives to a close. So Jordan, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, folks. And Rodney, thank you as always. Happy to be here. Uh, Quick tip of the hat to Taylor Marvin for making us sound good in the booth. Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, an org design and transformation partner to companies around the world. You can get in touch with us by emailing podcast at theready.com. If you like what you're hearing, uh, give us a review. They actually matter. And most importantly, share this show with someone who needs it. Um, we only grow with your help. So we're, we're ready to, uh, to reach new ears this week. Um, and with that said, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.